Good morning, Generations Church. My name is Rick Cook, and it's been a while since I talked about Chicago. So let me talk about Chicago in the 1970s. And I was impressed with my father. He was the uh, owner of a business. He wasn't uh, rich. He didn't have a huge business. He owned a single uh, building. But with that came a lot of responsibility, and with that came... Uh, a lot of the real problems of life. I remember he tried to teach me, uh, in case I were to take over the company someday, uh, he tried to teach me what life was like and what it was like to be a business owner, to be a manufacturer in Chicago. And I recall one time he talked to me about the city inspectors. I think they came maybe uh, twice a year or so. And when they came, he said, you had to be prepared. You had to be prepared to give them well, it was a bribe. You had to be prepared to bribe them. He said that um, it was very frustrating, but there was really nothing you could do. His factory was five stories high. It was over 50 years old, and certainly an inspector could find something wrong with the factory. And I look back at that. I look back at that, and I think of him as a corrupt machine hack. And it kind of is infuriating because I think a hack, a hack is a person who gets a job when they're completely unqualified or there are no particular qualifications. And so this person who would come was just a hack and they were part of a machine. If we go back to Chicago in the 1970s, that was during the rule of the great Mayor Richard Daly, and he controlled one of the great machines in the country. He controlled Chicago for several decades. So you had this city official who was a hack. He had been part, he had become part of this machine, and the whole system was corrupt. And it is infuriating. And there's really nothing that someone like my dad could do. And so he just went along. And as he taught me, that is what you should do. You just go along. And so when the corrupt machine hack shows up at your place of business with their handout, you provide for them. In our scripture today, we are going to read the story about Levi. And as I read the story. Levi is a corrupt machine hack. And as we will see, he is a tax collector. So let us read our passage and see how Jesus treats Levi. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy 
who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And on that day, they will fast. And what we see here is how Jesus treats this corrupt machine hack. He opens up. I wish I could read these passages like Max McLean. And so let me again encourage you to look at the videos if you haven't done that yet. There are 16 videos of the book of Mark uh, as recited, as performed by Max McLean. Today, our message is on three questions. And the last time we saw a story where Jesus not only healed the lame man, But he said, your sins are forgiven. He claimed deity. He claimed to do something that only God himself could do. And the questions aren't immediately obvious uh, why they're interesting, but they are fascinating because the response to each of those questions, the answer to it is breathtaking. It is transformational. And our lives when we engage Jesus, when we lean into him and lean into these truths, make everything different. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you to use this message, the words of Jesus, to poke us, to poke our hearts, to spur us to follow you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. We turn now to the first story of Levi. He's the corrupt machine hack. But even more than being a story about Levi, this is a story about Jesus. And the point of these stories, the point of them is to enter into the heart of Jesus. Because in And through these stories, Jesus wants to express his heart. He wants to show truth, and he wants to display his mercy and his forgiveness and to provide us, provide us with hope. As we're going to see Jesus uh, over and over again, we're going to see that Jesus loves to surprise his followers and he loves to annoy his enemies. And so we see here, once again, Jesus went out beside a lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. First thing to note, this is such a beautiful model for teaching, isn't it? If you're a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a small group teacher, a leader, if you're a parent, this is the way to teach. It's not to sit people down and teach platitudes. That has its place and it can have some effect. But the way Jesus was most effective was as he went along and as people were with him, He opened his mouth 
and spoke. So the crowd comes and he takes the opportunity to begin to preach. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. We want to understand that where they are is they are at a key post on the trade routes. And along the trade routes, there was a tax collector's booth. And the tax collector's booth was out in the open. Usually they were up on a platform. It has to be up on the platform. And sitting on the platform among his receipts and maybe piles of cash next to him, you see this fellow Levi. And you would see him day after day. This corrupt man, he was a Jewish, unlike I find the the city official in Chicago at my dad's factory, I find that offensive. But in some ways, Levi was even worse because Levi was from the Jewish people. He was from their own community. He was known to them, but he had betrayed them. Think of something like Benedict Arnold. He had joined up with the Romans. He had joined up with the enemies. He had joined up with the corrupt system and had become part of it. And he was using his authority, using his power as a Roman representative to abuse his own people. And he sat high in a platform where everyone knew him and everyone could see him. And you just have to think No one would expect Jesus to do what he did. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. What would Levi do? I'm thinking if, if Jesus came to this official in Chicago, Would he leave his job? Would he leave all his opportunities? Would he leave, risk everything and say yes? It's almost impossible to imagine. I don't think we can overstate how stunning this response is. Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. For those of you who are less familiar, Levi has two different names in the New Testament. The other name is Matthew. And as we know, Matthew is the much better known name for Levi. Levi the tax collector is the same person as Matthew the disciple. Matthew the author of the book of Matthew. This was a radical transformation for Matthew on that day when he stepped down from his position as a tax collector and agreed to be faithful and follow Jesus Christ. Matthew, Levi, got up and followed him. It gets worse, I think. I think if my dad went to church one Sunday and saw the corrupt hack, the corrupt machine hack 
had arrived at his church. I don't know how my dad would take it. That would be hard to see. What are you doing here? So this situation, this scene gets worse. It just multiplies as Jesus is really annoying the people who uh, hate him, and he's surprising his friends. Not only does he call Levi to follow him, he now says while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, he went to his house and was supping together with him. Not only that, many tax collectors. So who does Levi know? Tax collectors and sinners were eating with them and his disciples, for there were many who followed them. This is an amazing picture when you think about it. These tax collectors, they were expelled, excommunicated from the synagogues when these Jewish tax collectors would be excommunicated when they became tax collectors. And so Jesus would never have an opportunity to meet them or speak to them or preach to them the good news unless he went out to them. They didn't come in to the synagogue. And so there he was. He had gone out to his house. He was speaking to Levi. He was speaking to the friends of Levi and the Pharisees and the other Jews. Jewish leaders were scandalized. Who is this guy? When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He says this statement It was a statement, kind of a proverb that was known to them. It's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. And he is now going to expand this truism. It's a truism. It's a proverb. It's something they more or less accepted. Obviously, the doctor needs to go among sick people. If the doctor's going to be effective, he doesn't go to a place where there are all healthy people. He goes to a place where there are sick people. And so that's what Jesus is saying. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So I go to where the sick are. But now he expands the proverb. He expands the truism. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. He makes it spiritual. He's not just doing physical healing, but he is saying to the lame man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. It is a powerful truth that Jesus can forgive sins. We move into the second question, the first question we find out that Jesus forgives sins. That is a powerful truth. And we want to keep that in mind now as we go to question number two. Jesus is the one who forgives sins. Jesus came to earth to forgive sins. Why don't the disciples of Jesus fast? Question two. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? John the Baptist had followers and they were um, continuing to fast. They were called on by John to repent of their sin, to mourn their sinful state and to repent. And so they were fasting. They were also fasting because John the Baptist had been arrested. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they fasted 
we learn from other parts of the New Testament, they fasted as a show of piety to show who they are. So John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees' disciples are fasting. But what about you, Jesus? Why don't your disciples fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. This is a powerful image because there's nothing more celebratory than a wedding. There's nothing more exciting where we come together as a community and we celebrate a man and a woman as they come together in matrimony and two families join together and we celebrate. That's not the time to wear sack uh, and uh, wear sackcloths and time to cover ourselves with ashes. No, that is the time to celebrate. And that is the truth that Jesus is beginning to push us toward the fact that the Messiah has come. He's come to forgive sins. That is something to be celebrated. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. This is the first instance in the book of Mark where Jesus points to the cross and begins to prepare his disciples for his ultimate sacrifice, death for their sins. The time will come when Jesus, the bridegroom, will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. There's nothing wrong with fasting, but there's a time and a place. There's an appropriate role for fasting. And this isn't it when Jesus is with them. And then he describes the kingdom. It is an absolute new phenomenon. It is something that is different. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wineskin into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins. The picture is uh, powerful. When you have new wine, you pour it into a new wine skin. As the wine expands, the wine skin is able to expand with it. When the wine skin ages, it becomes crusty, it becomes feeble, it becomes brittle. And so if you take the wine and pour it out and put in new wine into that brittle, fragile wineskin, when that new wine begins to expand, it will break. That is the picture. The arrival of Jesus the reign of the Messiah is new. The reign of Jesus, the reign of the Messiah is different. It is transformational. And it is something to be celebrated. Jesus came to forgive sin. And the arrival of Jesus is something to be celebrated. Third story, again, Mark 1, 2, 3. Why do the followers of Jesus work on the Sabbath? One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields as his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to them, look, 
Why are they doing what is unlawful during the Sabbath? And so what we have is a very innocent picture. We have the picture of the disciples and they're merrily going along, but they are hungry, they are within need and they go into the fields and they do what is lawful. This is required in the Old Testament that the way they are uh, picking up the grain and the way they are consuming it is, it, it is legal, it is lawful. They are welcome to go into the field. They are welcome to do what they're doing. However, by the law of the Pharisees who have become the rule makers for the Sabbath. So they've gone through and they've thought through, well, what are the rules of the Sabbath? It says you're not allowed to work in the Old Testament. So what is work? And they have decided that to go into the fields and to do what Jesus and his disciples are doing, they have decided that that is against the rules. Actually, what we can see is the Pharisees have made themselves into the rule makers. They have made themselves into the law givers. And according to the law they have given, Jesus is breaking the law. Jesus was going through the grain fields. He was doing something that was completely acceptable, even according to the law of the Pharisees. But according to the law of the Pharisees, they should not have done that on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees said to him, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, and he goes to the Old Testament, and he actually really gives them a conundrum. Because if David and the priest in that day, had followed the current laws of the Pharisee, they would have broken the law. He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread. What was done in the temple uh, is they had prepared bread and they would put it before uh, God for a period of time. And then when that period of time was over, it was taken away and it was prohibited for people to eat that bread that had been prepared for God. But the high priests at the time, Abiathar, he saw that the need of the people in front of him superseded the law. Superseding the law. Is the law bad? I, I think we need to be so careful with this passage because I don't think Jesus is saying the law is bad. He's not saying that we aren't to fast. He's not saying that we are not, it's not necessary to follow the Sabbath or to keep the Sabbath. No, he's not arguing that. What he's saying is that there's a higher law. There's a higher truth that might be in play. And when that is in play, then it is lawful. An illustration I have heard is in our society and in probably every society, there is a law against shooting people. Is that a good law? Yeah, that's a great law. People shouldn't go around shooting people. So the law is that you can't shoot people. However, can you imagine a situation where shooting someone might be the proper response? might be justified and the right and the just 
and the moral thing to do. Certainly there are cases. So because there are some rare cases that you're allowed to shoot, does that mean we should just get rid of the law that says you can't shoot people? No, of course not. You have the law and the law is in place to guide us, to instruct us, to help us follow what is right and what is righteous and what is good. But there are special and only special cases where that might be overridden. And so that's what happened with David. The greater need was the need for the human beings, for David and his companions. The greater need wasn't strictly following the rules for the bread. The greater need was the need of David and his companions. And so David and the priest followed the greater law. In the days of the high priest, he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companion. So Jesus uses this as an illustration to the Pharisees to say, what do you say to that? Because they have, according to you, they've broken your law. And in a sense, what they have done is they have made themselves the lawgivers. They have made themselves the Lord of the Sabbath. They have made themselves the Lord of the law. When they made their rules, their set of rules about the Sabbath, they made themselves essentially the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus corrects them. No, there's deeper truths at play. And he explains to them. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then the profound truth. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Here Jesus makes a clear statement about his deity. He is God. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Those who have made themselves the Lord of the Sabbath are not the Lord, but he, Jesus Christ, Son of God, is in fact the Lord of the Sabbath, and he has come to earth. And what we see and what we celebrate is that his ministry has no precedent. There has never been anything like Jesus, not the Pharisees, not the lawgivers, not the Old Testament. Everything is transformed. Everything is new. And in, uh, as we come to the conclusion and as we uh, think about these three questions and we think about how Jesus has responded to those three questions, I have a final thought. I um, have been interested, uh, like many people, in the uh, space program. And one of the things I love is seeing these photos of these, uh, of these uh, academic mathematicians, computer nerds. And I love to see them together as they're working together. Here's a picture of them as they're so tense, waiting for the moment to see if what they hope for actually happens, whatever is their goal for that particular mission. So here they all are tensely waiting. Uh, here's another picture. Uh, <laughs> 
I, I love to see the nerds because uh, the nerds, you know, uh, with the short sleeves and the tie. Yeah, so I dressed for the occasion for the sermon today, wearing their short sleeves and their ties and their uh, uh, pencils in their pocket with the pe- uh, pencil holder. <laughs> I love to see the moment they succeed when someone walks on the moon or when the launch is successful and they come and they celebrate. And I love it because that celebration, you can sense it. It's their opportunity. The computer nerds, the math nerds, it's their opportunity to celebrate as if they were an athlete, a football player who won the Super Bowl. And so they come together. That's the image I want us to think of as we think of the reign of Christ. We have waited thousands of years for the promised Messiah. And I think of the Jewish people just waiting in hope. Will this happen? How will this happen? That's the sense. And then Jesus came and he began piece by piece to reveal to them that he is the Messiah. Let us embrace Jesus today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to the earth, that you are the Messiah, that you demonstrated that on earth, and you make transformation possible for us today. Thank you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.